0: You can turn once again in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 10 this evening. A passage that is in many ways has a somber tone to it, but yet has um, remarkable grace for us in it. The sermon's entitled, More Grace Tonight. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, this is God's holy You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace May the Holy Spirit grant us his help as we look to his word together. Now, a question that we might bring as we come to this passage tonight is something like this. Why am I still not who I want to be? Why am I not the person I wish I was yet? Why do I keep getting into the same stupid conflicts? Why do I keep struggling with the same things? Why, try as I might, do I feel like I just so often just come up empty? And what does God think about this sort of mess that is me? Is there hope for me? And if this is the case, what can be done? What can be done? James opens with this question in verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What causes conflicts, right? We all go through conflict. Wouldn't we like to know where they come from? Well, he doesn't keep us in suspense. He answers right away. Almost like a catechism. Question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Answer, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says these conflicts are coming from passions that are at war within you. And these warring passions are first that warfare that we feel within us, the spirit fighting the flesh where we don't do the things that we wish we would. We have that internal conflict and struggle. But that war Within us, when it goes the wrong way, then often becomes the war between us. Conflicts between people, conflicts between nations, coming from conflicting desires, conflicting wants. And James gives us an example of what this might look like. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the issue here is he's saying there's unfulfilled wants that are being pursued by unjust means. The things that the people want, they want them, and so they're pursuing them whatever it takes. And this pursuit is leading to things like murder and fighting and quarreling. Now, James doesn't tell us what are those exact passions leading to these things like murder, like fighting, like arguing, quarreling. But we can surmise that they're what has always plagued mankind. Um, A bit of research reveals that um, for those that are homicide detectives who study murder, they say there's really generally only three motivations that lead to murder, three large categories that lead to most murders. The first being uh, lust, uh, sexual-related crimes. The second being greed. Uh, sort of, you can think, armed robberies, the greed leads to murder, and then uh, broadly power, or you might consider that vengeance. This is what most uh, gang murder would be. It's, it's a protecting your turf. It's a taking revenge on those who would belittle you or come against you, maintaining your own power. These three things are the primary motivations, these passions people are pursuing that lead them to these sorts of dire results. This is very biblical. We think of 1 John 2. What is this then? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the greed, and the pride of life, this power. Aren't these really the three main issues that lead to most conflicts in marriage? Conflicts related to issues of sexuality, conflicts related to issues of money and finances, and conflicts related to issues of autonomy, of power. And what we might mean by this is really uh, responsibility expectations. We fight to have control over ourselves. We don't want our spouse telling us what to do. And so these conflicts that arise over divvying up work, household duties, care of the kids, who gets to do what hobbies and when, who gets to do what cleaning and when, and who gets to tell the other person what's what, we want our autonomy. We don't want anyone imposing upon us and how we want the household to run the lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life that lead us to pursue things in unjust ways, leading to these conflicts. Or as kids might say on the playground, you're not the boss of me. They want that autonomy, that self-sufficiency. And in each of these areas, in each of these lustful pursuits, these fleshly, worldly pursuits, everyone is seeking something that they perceive to be some good. They are doing this thinking that this is going to better them in some way, provide some satisfaction, some delight for them. But the issue is, James brings up, he says, you don't have, that is to imply you don't have what you're actually looking for. In all these pursuits, you never have what? You don't have the fulfillment, the satisfaction, the joy, the peace, the love you're not getting what you're really after because, he says, you do not ask. That is to imply you don't ask of God. You're not seeking of God what you really need. Because you see, our deepest desires, our deepest desires for this unconditional love, unquenchable joy, unwavering hope, and unceasing peace are never to be found in any of the things of this world that we pursue. Any good pursuit in just this natural realm is never going to satisfy our souls that are designed to only be satisfied in God. Uh, I was taught yesterday of a, uh, of a new German word, a word, uh, I'm probably gonna butcher the pronunciation, but it's uh, Seinsuft, Zainzuft, and it's a word meaning an unfulfilled longing, or it was described as uh, looking for that which I don't know what, looking for something I don't know what. And this zainzuft is inside of each one of us until we find those longings and yearnings satisfied and fulfilled in God. Our souls are vast and deep and can only be satisfied in God. Uh, Even psychologists recognize a problem that they call hedonic adaptation. A hedonic adaptation simply means that the things that bring us pleasure, think hedonism, when indulged in, It always fades away. You get diminishing returns, and so you always need to be pursuing more, a greater dose, a stronger fix, new novelties, greater power, because your baseline for delight keeps going up and up and up. Namely, you're always going to be chasing and never finding. Solomon had all the women, all the money, all the power, and yet he knew that it was never enough to satisfy the heart that's made to be satisfied in God. And so with our deepest desires, we have to be pursuing them and seeking them in God alone. But someone might respond, well, I do pray, I am asking God, and yet still here I am. And so James gives this caveat in verse 3, he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That is to say, if your prayers are reflecting your carnal will, instead of God's heavenly will, they're never going to be answered. And the problem is that the things we want are often not the right things. We want things to satisfy our passions, not what God wants for us. The issue is with our hearts. Our easy way to think about the heart in scripture, boys and girls, is you could call the heart, it's a wanter. It's what part of you wants things. The things you want reflect your heart. And we naturally have a wanter that's out of whack. It's like a compass that doesn't point north. It sends you any and every direction to always get lost. But when Christ comes to us, the Spirit renews us, we get that alignment, the compass of our hearts pointed north to want God above all. But even in the Christian life, we get out of alignment. We start veering off the path towards other lesser things, things of the world, things of the flesh. And we need to, a constant recalibration. If you've had a broken compass, you can take a magnet to it, remagnetize it, get it pointed north again. And that's why we need consistent worship. That's what we're doing right now, is we're reminding our mind of what we really believe. We're reminding of our hearts, of what's most important. We're reminding our wills of how we want to live our lives. We're realigning our priorities, reigniting our affections for God. Because as we often sing, we know that we're prone to wander, prone to leave God. We need a recalibration of our hearts. But with apart from this heart recalibration, if we're left going down that path, pursuing worldly lusts, where does that leave us? But the conclusion James gives in verse 4, he says, You adulterous people. That is strong language. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is to be an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, friendship with the world, that's not talking about having friends. It's talking about pursuing the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of power, of seeking autonomy, wealth, all these things, and pursuing it by our own means, in our own way. And pursuing these worldly lusts as a Christian is said to be cheating on God because we are seeking other things before God. We're breaking the first commandment and placing other things as false gods above the true God, having the best of ourselves and our hearts given to things that are finite and creaturely instead of God himself. With this metaphor James uses, it's akin to seeking to find intimate pleasure in someone other than your spouse. It's leaving the satisfying fountain, going after other things, leaving the God we love. And someone might respond, as they did in James 2, Well, I still believe in God. I I think God's fine. I'll pursue a bit of this, a bit of that. It's no big deal. But James reminds in verse 5, he says, Do you suppose it's to no purpose that in scripture he says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God is jealous for us to have all of our heart, all of our affections. He's jealous over the human spirit. He's put in all peoples, but he's particularly jealous over the Holy Spirit within his people, within the church, The temple of the Holy Spirit is what we're called. That's what Paul brings in in 1 Corinthians 6 to remind the people to not go after sexual sin because he says, how can this temple share a home with such sins? This reminded me of of my old friend uh, Stephanie when back in high school, she started wandering down a bad path and just pursuing all the things of the world, all the partying and drinking and everything that goes along with that. But she says the thought that woke her up out of that sort of stupor she was in was really this thought that I do believe in Christ and everywhere I go, that means the Holy Spirit is coming with me. And how am I bringing God's spirit into these activities of vileness and depravity? God is holier than for me to be going and defiling the temple of God with such things. It was being reminded that God yearns jealously over the spirit he had made to dwell in her that led Stephanie to commit herself to God, to take a gap year, to go to a Bible school so she could grow in her faith. And she did. She's now a missionary out in Mongolia. God wants our all. He wants our exclusive covenant love and allegiance. And yet, don't we so often pursue other lovers? We find ourselves quickly drawn away, wandering, pursuing these things that are evident before us, the things we think will make us happy, and we feel the weight. Don't you feel the weight as you hear James calling these people an adulterous people? And don't you feel that in yourself? You feel that warfare of the flesh and spirit. You feel when you get pulled away, into worldly things, and you commiserate with Paul in Romans 7 saying, "'I I don't understand my own actions, for I don't do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I don't want is what I keep on doing. I do delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see another law waging war in my members against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members.'" Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And so we think, I know I'm a mess, so what hope is there for me? How could God look at my adulterous heart, my proneness to water, and what does he think about me? Well, James, after verse 5, has a verse 6. But he gives more grace. I don't know if there's a better five words in Scripture But he gives more grace. More grace. More grace. More grace. As Isaiah 59 says, God's hand isn't too short to redeem. There's always grace enough for the worst of us. And yet, so often we're bashful. We're we're like a little Oliver Twist who's hungry and getting a bit of food and just wondering if he can ask for more, wondering if it's okay for him to ask for more. But God says, there's more grace. There's always enough grace for you and for me. And actually, we dishonor God when we treat his grace like it's scanty and limited. We dishonor him when we think that our sins and our adulteries are too much for his grace to cover. It's dishonoring to God. And it's foolish of us. It'd be like, uh, imagine a, a college student who has a billionaire uncle and the uncle offers to pay for his, his student loans and he's saying, oh, Uncle Elon, i it's too much. I really racked up a lot of debt in college. Like, I went for the master's after that and then I went for the PhD. Like, really, I'm pretty sure it's too much for you. And you'd say, how small-minded to not know that there's far more than enough. And with God, there is far, far more than enough grace for us. And God doesn't play us for fools. He doesn't bait and switch us to say, come for grace and then uh, change the system and say, ah, I'm not sure there's any more grace coming. It's not like uh, what Google Photos did to me when they told me I had unlimited photo storage and then last year told me, actually, I have limited photo storage and I'm basically out. God doesn't say I have unlimited grace and then say, ah, not for you. Not anymore, I think the fountain has tapped out. But he gives more grace. An overflowing fountain of grace. John 1.16 said that from Christ's fullness, we've received grace upon grace. Grace, grace, grace. I like to think of it like a waterfall. A waterfall, if you've ever stood under a waterfall. Just the water doesn't stop. It just keeps coming and coming. And when we stand under that waterfall of Christ's grace, it's like Niagara Falls, both the Canadian and American side, coming down, showering us with grace in an unlimited supply. The depths of the love of Christ for us. God's grace. And James brings in the Old Testament to reinforce the reality of grace and tells us who is the one who receives God's grace. That's what we should really be thinking. If there's that much grace available, how do I get it? How do I become the person that's receiving this amazing grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, those who are pursuing worldly things, which is really pride, thinking they know better than God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you think, wow, I want to be humble. If the humble receive God's grace, if grace is what I need more than anything in the world, what does this humility then look like? What would it be to be a humble person? Well, James describes for us in five different ways what this humility looks like. So it behooves us to turn our attention to what would this sort of humility look like? What is this appropriate response to this infinitely available grace? Well, James begins in verse seven, he says, Submit yourselves to God. That is, stop. Stop fighting God. Stop fighting God thinking that you know how to live your own life best and surrender. Say, God, I give up. I'm raising the white flag. I surrender all to you. You will be my king. My life will be yours. I render you my fullest allegiance. Humility says you are my Lord, not I. Second, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So don't fight God. Don't fight God's will. Fight the devil. Fight the sin that he's trying to pull you to. Fight that kingdom of darkness that he's trying to lure you into, knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? When God fought with Israel, none of their enemies could stand before them. It's only when they went in their own might, own power, and own strength that they lost, trusting Lord in the battle, saying, God, help me. God, equip me to fight the fight of faith. Really, a key is to just never stop fighting your sin. When you're defeated, the worst thing you can do is give up and say, I guess I'll never get any victory. No, you follow Paul's instruction in Philippians 2. You forget what lies behind and you press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Never stop fighting. Third, verse eight, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We draw near to God by faith through worship, particularly through prayer. That's where we are, as Hebrews 4 says, coming to the throne of grace, to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And when we draw near to God with hearts of faith in worship, in prayer, in pursuit of him, God draws near to us. He kisses his word towards us. He blesses us with that sense of his presence with us at all times. God comes near. And so humility says God You are what I need, so I will come to you. I won't wait. I'm gonna seek you morning by morning, day after day. Um, As Moses said, if your spirit does not go with us, don't send us on from here. God, I need you. It's where your heart becomes the heart of Asaph in Psalm 73 saying, God, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. God, you are the strength of my heart and you are my portion forever. God, you are the one I want and need. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He continues, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is to say that the humble, repentant person takes the responsibility to go to God for cleansing. He's not saying to cleanse yourself, but as you would go to a faucet to wash your hands, you're not doing the washing, the water is. We come to God to receive his cleansing through Christ. We come confessing our sins, trusting the assurance we receive in Jesus. We, we don't wait thinking, well, if God gives me enough conviction, if he makes me feel badly enough, then I'll go to him. No, the humble person says, I'm just gonna go. Sinner though I am, I am going to God for my cleansing, for my purification. Following the example of David, who after his gravest of sins, says in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And later on, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." To go to God for cleansing and purification. The humble person knows they can't cleanse themselves. We go to God to be cleansed. Verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That is to say, the humble and repentant person takes sin seriously. They know sin is no laughing matter, it's no joking matter, it's grave and serious in its consequences. Therefore, humility has a sober-minded appraisal of sin. They know rightly that the wages of sin is death. And therefore, the humble person is sober and contrite in heart because of their sin. They know that friendship with the world ought to be mourned. And the appropriate heart posture is one of kneeling. It's an attitude of contrition, of affliction of ourselves. Sobriety regarding our sin. And then James summarizes this again in verse 10 with really what all this means together is humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. That's what all this is. Humbling ourselves involves submitting ourselves, surrendering to God, fighting Satan and sin, drawing near to God by faith and prayer, coming to God for our cleansing and purification, taking sin seriously, mourning over it. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We don't need to try to exalt ourselves. We don't need to try to prove to God that we're good enough or prove to God that our faith is strong enough or our obedience is exact enough. We go low, trusting God is the one who lifts us high. This is the path to receive this grace upon grace. It's it's humility. It's a recognition of God. I don't got it. I need you. I need your help. We go low and the Lord lifts us high. Psalm 25, 8, and 9 tells us, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. And the humble, these are the ones the Lord exalts. And he exalts them very high to heavenly places. Ephesians 1.3 reminds us that God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Heavenly exaltation. And right in the next chapter, in chapter two, we're reminded that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's not a future thing, that's a now thing, to be seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places. And so you don't need to exalt yourself to heaven because God lifts you up there. We humble ourselves before the Lord. Then the question is, how is this possible for us? How is it that God could have grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? How is it that he would lift the low ones high? It's because, first of all, the high one became low. Jesus Christ, the exalted God, maker of all, he took on our flesh, he humbled himself. Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross in obedience, being made like us in every respect. Christ became low in his incarnation, in the sufferings and scourgings that we heard proclaimed this morning. Christ's sufferings, his death in a shameful death, in a public execution. Christ goes low. He goes low into the grave, but God raises him up. And God lifts Jesus up on high, showing that no grave can hold him. Death cannot hold him. Sin cannot hold him. But Christ is the victorious, conquering king, seated on high. And by faith in Christ, that, um, what someone has called the J-curve, of going low and going high, it becomes our ark as well. We are united with him in his death, that we might be united with him in his resurrection. This is the grace of Jesus. Paul said, you know this grace in 2 Corinthians 8 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's God's grace. He was made low so that he could lift the low ones like us up to heavenly places. And every one of these blessings we receive, all this grace comes through Jesus, the gracious one who had grace upon grace. And so, for you and for me, there's always enough. Never think there's not enough grace for you. So never stop seeking the more grace held out to us in this passage. Every day we need to be reminded, when I wake up, there's more grace for me today. When we reflect on our day at evening, we realize how we lived and didn't live, but God gives more grace. There's more grace, more grace. And God is... um, strongly honored when we are relying on his grace. God doesn't receive honor from the person who thinks they're doing so well that they don't really need God's grace. God is most honored when we most desperately cling to his grace. And so let's learn to be the people of more grace because there's always enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace is astounding. As we sing many times, it's, it's amazing. And we're going to be singing about it forever. Uh, you've been so merciful to us. You've shown us such love. Love we see displayed best in the death of Christ. Love that still comes to us. Lord, would we know how much you've done to redeem us. And that knowing your redemption, knowing your grace, would lead us to forsake sin. To surrender to our gracious God more and more. To live for you. Would your Holy Spirit work up true repentance and faith in each and every heart and you would make us a humble people, a people that love to go low because we know that's where you meet us. That's where your grace finds us. So Lord, teach us to be the people who know where the grace is found, at the throne of grace. And let us go there each and every day by the merits of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.